the polarization of America is just about complete, isn't it? Citizens of our country are so divided, so polarized, that many wonder if we will ever be the United States again. No matter the subject, people are prone to disagree and argue one side or the other. Just don't want to agree. So it has been quite an amazing two weeks. The confirmation hearings of Judge Brett Kavanaugh. What a debacle. The whole time, uh, the situation has been so polarized, so divisive to our nation. Uh, and I hope we don't have to go through many more weeks like this this week or the week before. Our nation is deeply divided, so uh, definitely needing our prayers. But I want to ask this morning, how did we get here? How did this happen? What are our main problems anyway? How can we explain what's going on around us? You know, many things are being blamed. Everybody has an idea. You know, the main problem, everyone you talk to has figured out a different cause and a different solution for that reason why we are where we are. Some say it's our equality issues. You know, we know there's a lot of inequality in income or gender or race or educational opportunities, just a lot of things. Some say the problem is not us, it's outside of us, it's other countries, foreign influences. They say that we Americans have been taken advantage of for too long. They point to our current trade deficit or maybe our immigration issues. Some say the problem is inside the country, it's really close to home. In fact, it's in our homes. It's uh, our broken families and our many dysfunctional families in America show abuse and neglect and absentee parents. Others want to point to economic problems, to all the woes that we have financially, like the ballooning cost of health care, or maybe out-of-control government spending. The average American just can't keep up, can't even pay the taxes. Pastor Rich Nathan noted sadly that even most Christians don't know what's behind all this. They can't tell you what the basic problem is in our world or even in ourselves. At some churches, it seems like the thing that the hot topic is sexual immorality, premarital sex, adultery, gay sex. In some churches, you think that the fundamental issue that we face is drinking or gambling or smoking because there's constantly a stream of messages about that. In other churches, if you listen to the preaching, you might believe that the ultimate problem is that you didn't give a large enough donation to enable the minister to go buy his private jet. That's why you're not prospering. That's why you're not successful, because you didn't help him to be prosperous and successful. And then Nathan said, in our world, in our country, in our institutions, in our families, and in our homes, with all these politicians and politics and all the therapists and all the talking heads constantly screaming their diagnosis of, of, of what it is that ails us, even the followers of Christ have forgotten what God says is our basic problem. And what is the basic problem? Behind it all is one thing. Sin. Sin. Sin is at the heart of everything. It's in the heart of every human being. Sin is working to disrupt and divide every human relationship. And the chief sin, the root of all sin, is what? Pride. Pride. So this morning I want to talk about selfish pride. I'm not talking about gay pride or any other kind of specialized pride. 
just pride. I'm not talking about the kind of pride that a parent has when they, he or she says, I'm proud of my children. Let me tell you what they've done. No, I'm talking about the kind of pride that the Bible calls hubris. Hubris is when we get an excessive, exaggerated view of ourselves and our own importance. When we make everything about us. So it's really neat that this morning we sang, it is not about us, it's about you, Lord. We need to be reminded of that. Hubris is saying that the most important thing in the world is what I want. And when everybody gets in that position, it just doesn't work. It's conflict. This kind of pride is a problem for straight people. It's a problem for both men and women. It's a problem for both young people and old people. Pride is the root problem of sin, plain and simple. And because of his pride, Lucifer, the archangel, was cast out of heaven, right? He decided he put himself up against God. He, he vaunted himself against God, and God threw him out of heaven because there can only be one God. And so since that day, pride has been one of the tools that the devil uses to get into our hearts. He feeds our pride. He feeds our self-importance. And he says to us, like he said to Eve, you know, if you do this, you'll be like God. You'll be able to act like God. And it was through pride that Adam and Eve fell. It is through pride that all of us, in one way or another, have fallen into sin as well. Romans 3.23, you may know, it says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us has decided at some point in our lives what we will do, and that, that, that is based on what we want to do rather than what God wants us to do. We know better than God. We, we have a better plan than God. And so we rebel against God and we sin. So we're back in Daniel today. Strangers in a strange land. This time we're in Daniel chapter 4. I hope you'll start turning there in your Bible uh, you can choose one of the few Bibles if you'd like to do that. We're still talking about King Nebuchadnezzar. Three messages about King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, Daniels 2, 3, and 4. We've already learned that Nebuchadnezzar is this proud, self-centered man. And our sermon title today is, I, Nebuchadnezzar. The reason for that is that four times in this chapter, this was that Nebuchadnezzar says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, did this, or I decided that, or I, I wanted to pursue this and it's interesting that he puts his name right out there front and center now i want us to try something this morning i know this is probably counter to your nature but i want you to think of your own first name and in a moment i want us to all say together i whatever your first name is i john and we're going to do it three times i john i john i john okay but you put in your name and let's just see how we do on this because we want you to be the center of attention this morning, okay? Let's do it together. One, two, three. I, John. I, John. I, John. That didn't work, did it? It really didn't work too well. If we got really vocal about it, really uh, exaggerated about it, really zealous about it, if everybody's doing it at the same time, it doesn't really work very well. But Nebuchadnezzar could make that work because he's king of the world. He is the greatest king in the world at this time. And so he got rather full of himself. There are three signs of excessive pride I want you to just note with me this morning. Somebody's just full of themselves. What does this look like? First of all, we are fiercely competitive. We think that we have to win every time we're angry. We may even pout 
whenever we don't. Somebody else beats us in a game, it just disturbs us. We think we always have to be on top, always at the front of the line. If you're a child in school, you want to be the one leading the line every time. We can't stand it when someone else gets ahead of us, even in traffic. Ah, now we're getting a little close to home, aren't we? They beat me to the next light. I can't believe this around here. Our people fight over that. We have trouble celebrating someone else's victories, big or small. They come and tell us about it. We got to one-up them. You know, we got to tell them, well, this happened to me because I can't enjoy your success. Pride makes us super competitive for position and influence. Secondly, pride makes us accept responsibility more readily for our successes than for our failures. Yeah, you want to give me kudos, you want to congratulate me, you want to say good job, I'm all there, you know, even if I really didn't do anything. I was part of that success. But if there's a failure, then I don't want to talk about it. Gladly take credit for success. We even exaggerate maybe our role in accomplishing that. But if we fail, if we ever fail, we pass blame on to someone else. <laughs> or we say that the situation was really beyond my control. You know, I really couldn't have done anything anyhow. We can't allow ourselves to admit our mistakes. This is another sign of pride. Thirdly, we believe that we are smarter and better than we actually are. <laughs> we hold ourselves in greater esteem than we probably deserve. When we compare ourselves with other people, the scale is always tipped in our favor. Now, this is interesting. Surveys tell us that almost every area of life that is socially desirable, most people see themselves as better than average. Nobody wants to be average. We're all better than average in our own opinion. American business people, for instance, see themselves as more ethical than the average American businessman. Most drivers believe that they're better drivers than the other people they're in the road with. They're not just an average driver. Most people see themselves as less racially prejudiced than the average person. Now, I don't have those hang-ups. They went to a, a bunch of high school seniors, 829,000 of them, and they surveyed them to see how they compared themselves to their peers. And we asked them, for instance, what is your leadership ability? 70% of them rated themselves as above average as a leader. Now, how do you have 70% leaders and 30% followers? That just, that math doesn't work, but everybody saw themselves in that way. In their ability to get along well with others, you know, get along with others, 0% of them responded that they were below average. 60% said they were in the top 10% of people getting along with each other, and 25% said they were in the top 1% of being able to get along with people. So why are there so many problems in our high schools? Because these are wonderful people that always get along with each other, apparently. Pride makes us very competitive. It gives us a skewed perspective on our achievements and failures. And it makes us, as the Bible says, think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. <laughs> Romans 12.3. Paul says, don't do that. Spirit of God says, don't do that. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Well, Nebuchadnezzar did. And he thought he was the center of the universe, but that is a place reserved for God alone. He thought he could do whatever he pleased and run over whoever needed to be run over. And King Nebuchadnezzar had a major problem with pride. Daniel 4 is the third time that God 
tries to confront him, to say something or do something dramatic to get Nebuchadnezzar's attention. And you know, back in Daniel 2, he gave this dream to him of this, this huge, strong figure, this, and it was a, to represent a series of kingdoms, Nebuchadnezzar at the top with the gold head, remember, and then there's all these successive kingdoms, each one weaker than him, but eventually the whole thing was destroyed by this giant boulder that came in and crushed it, which became this giant mountain filling the whole earth, representing the kingdom that God would establish to replace all earthly kingdoms. The message was clear. Nebuchadnezzar, you have a great kingdom, but it's going to go away. And God's kingdom is the kingdom you need to be thinking about, be worried about, be, be uh, in, in awe of, not your own kingdom. He didn't get the point. In fact, the next thing happened in Daniel 3 was he built this 90-foot image, probably of himself, that everybody could bow down to that and worship this image of Nebuchadnezzar himself and his gods that he thought were the best gods. Not everyone agreed to do that. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel's friends, absolutely refused. They would not bow down. They were thrown into the fiery furnace to execute them, but they were saved. God saved them, brought them out safely from that fire, and once again, Nebuchadnezzar had to realize God's saying something here. The God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is definitely a better God than all the others. And he passed this decree. But did he believe in the God? Did he serve the God? Did he humble himself? He still didn't. And so God comes back to him in chapter 4 with another dream. Another dream uh, showing him that he needed to humble himself before God. Let's go to Daniel chapter 4 and let's read together. King Nebuchadnezzar. To the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders, how his kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at my home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. And when the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream. But they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. Now look back at verses 4 and 5 and see a contrast between those two. Nebuchadnezzar is relaxing at home, quite satisfied with himself and his accomplishments. He says that he's at home contented and prosperous. Isn't that where you'd like to live, contented and prosperous? And Nebuchadnezzar had achieved this. Then he had a dream, verse 5, and it made him afraid. It literally terrified him. While he's satisfied, while he's comfortable with everything he's achieved, God rattles his cage. God wakes him up to his pride. And he disturbs him in such a way so that Nebuchadnezzar could repent. But would he? Would he? Would he acknowledge that his pride was unwarranted as he stood before Almighty God? Well, no one could interpret this dream for the king except for Daniel, the man of God. So what was the dream? What was the interpretation that God gave him? Verse 10. 
These are the visions I saw while lying in bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches. From it every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze remain in the ground in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. Quite a dream, huh? <laughs> and he remembered it vividly. The mighty tree would be cut down in its prime. The stump left would become a wild animal living in the open field. And now for the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, which Daniel provided, though somewhat reluctantly. Verse 22. Your majesty, Daniel said, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, your majesty. This is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. Now, this must have been a difficult message to deliver to the king of all the earth at, the, at that time. He probably wondered, how is he going to react when I tell him he's going to be cut down and he's going to live like a wild animal? Now, the Bible doesn't say here exactly how Nebuchadnezzar reacted. But we see, as the story continues, that in just 12 months, he, we are, are watching that Nebuchadnezzar is ignoring the message. He's not doing anything. He hasn't changed. He hasn't changed his view. He hasn't changed his actions. He's still the same king he was before. 
And a full year after he had the dream and the prophet Daniel warned him about the danger of his pride, he still had as much pride as ever. And Daniel even alludes in the message, you know, it's not just your pride, it's the way you're treating people. You've, you've heard a lot of people, you've oppressed the people who are already oppressed. He may have thought he was doing just fine, but Nebuchadnezzar was denying all the bad things he had done to gain that wealth and the power and comfort that he now had. So God told this most powerful man on earth that he was going to sink lower than he could imagine, even to the point of an animal eating grass in the field. Can you imagine it? I've heard of people being forced to do that, and you immediately throw up. That doesn't work. But he made it work because it is all he had to eat. He would be reduced, Daniel said, to the crude existence of an ox living in the wild. Imagine if you were charged with the responsibility of giving that to one of the world leaders today. President Trump, I have a message for you from God. (laughs) Vladimir Putin, I have a message for you from God. Queen Elizabeth, I have a message for you from God. And... This guy was much more powerful than the three of them put together. God is giving you fair warning, Daniel's saying, so humble yourself or these things are going to happen to you. Daniel advised the king, but the king ignored his warnings. Verse 29, 12 months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is not this the great Babylon I have built? As the royal residence, by my mighty power, and for the glory of my majesty. Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. Now stop right there for a moment. Even as the words were on his lips, did you catch that? Then the voice came from heaven. Your authority has been stripped. Time is up. Okay, I gave you a chance. I gave you a warning. You you would not listen. Here's what happens. Daniel 4.32. You will be driven away from people. You will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. And immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from the people. He ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. I don't know if you've ever seen any of these people that they rescued from some deserted island who had no way to take care of themselves but just to try and barely survive or people that were thrown into a hole somewhere and barely fed or given water, what they look like afterwards. Imagine seven years of a person living like a wild animal, what he must have looked like. And Nebuchadnezzar continued to refuse to humble himself before God until seven years had passed. What are the basic results of pride? One is we ignore warnings. You know, someone else is warning us, someone's saying, uh, you better not do that. That's not a good idea. We don't hear it, because we're going to do what we want to do. We think the consequences of our selfish actions won't happen, or, or they won't matter. They won't apply to us. We think that maybe even if God sends a message, he doesn't really mean what he says. 
there's grace after all. Can we just play this game for a little while? You know, can I just go ahead and exert that pride for now? And we ignore the warnings. We also lose our ability to reason. We become wild animals in our actions. We're no longer thinking things through. We lose the ability to reason. Pride takes us places we would not go if we were in our right mind. It causes us to do things that everyone else can see are really foolish. But we insist that we're right. And we have a right to do what we want to do. And pretty soon, as things become easier, we are running headlong toward destruction. Much faster than we think we will, we find rock bottom. (laughs) How do we get here so fast? It took seven years for Nebuchadnezzar to finally reach rock bottom. But he looked up when he did. Now, what will it take for us in our pride to stop? And look up. After seven years, Nebuchadnezzar literally came to his senses. He humbled himself before God. Verse 34. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, Praise and exalt and glorify the kingdom of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Do you notice verse 37? One more time he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, but something has happened, right? There has been dramatic change of heart and he's humbled himself. This time he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven. What a big change of heart he's experienced. So how does someone overcome their pride? They humble themselves before God and they repent of their sins. They admit, you know, my way is not working. And then they ask God to show them a better way to live. In a word, they repent. The Bible calls this change of heart repentance. Very good Bible word, especially a good New Testament word. Jesus preached repentance. He his disciples to preach repentance because this is where healing begins. People throng to Jesus for the physical healings, but Jesus' message, Jesus' reason of going was to preach repentance. Because this is where healing begins. This means we acknowledge what we're doing is not right. And so we turn from doing wrong and start doing what is right. We humble ourselves before God and say, you were right, I was wrong. And it's really that simple. We don't have to make it a big theological discourse. We don't have to explain it in books and books. We just say, that's it. 
we finally humble ourselves. We, we humble ourselves before God and we repent. And then we accept the forgiveness of our sins and the new life that God offers us all in Jesus Christ. You know, many in our world, this strange world where we are strangers living only for a time, many are still filled with Many will go to hell rather than repent. This morning in our class, Jesus Among Secular Gods, we were talking about a guy named Richard Dawkins. There are a lot of people like him that want to insist there is no God. You are foolish to believe in a God. You have thrown out reason in order to believe in God and throw out all these criticisms. But the fact is, he doesn't want to answer to God, so in his mind there can't be a God. And, you know, in a way, it's the ultimate pride. And hopefully someday, a man like Richard Dawkins will be able to come back and, and humble himself before God and repent. Because if he doesn't, we know where he's headed. Many in our world are still filled with pride. Many will still go to hell rather than repent. Romans 1, 21 and 22 says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And many people will live their entire lives like Nebuchadnezzar. Not just seven years after the warning, but right on to the last breath they will take. Perhaps in a catastrophic event like he experienced, they will wake up and look to heaven again, or for the first time. But what about us? You know, we, we can be critical of everyone else, but even as Christians, pride can, can raise up again so easily. We can take pride in our spiritual accomplishments. We take pride in our Bible knowledge. We take pride like the publican that, that looked at the, the, the sinner and said, thank you, God, I'm not like that person. James 4, 6 says, humble yourselves before God. God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. James was talking to believers like us. When pride has somehow gripped our lives again. So I'm going to ask you, will you humble yourself before God this morning? Will you repent of your pride? Will you humbly accept the new life, the forgiveness that he offers you in Jesus Christ? Maybe you've never done that. Maybe you've never surrendered your life to Christ. I don't know everyone in here as to whether you've made that decision. I'm going to offer this time for you to make a decision to humble yourself, to look to heaven Humble yourself and say to God, your way is right, mine was wrong. I'm changing today. I'm going to change to your way. I'm going to repent. And I'm going to accept by your grace, through faith, what you're offering me in Jesus Christ. I'm going to surrender to Jesus today. I'm going to confess my faith in him before other people. I'm going to be baptized into Christ. My sins are going to be washed away. And I'm going to live for you from this day forward. If you've never done that, you can do that today. And if you're a Christian 
and you realize that pride has, has gotten a hold of your heart again, maybe in, in ways that were not very discernible till today, you can repent also. I can repent also. And we can be healed today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are able to, to take any of us, even in our great pride, and get us to humble ourselves. It took three, three times, three events for Nebuchadnezzar to humble himself before you. It may take more than that for us. But I pray that as we reach rock bottom, as we realize the, the, uh, the foolishness of our pride, that we would humble ourselves before you today. There is someone here today, Lord, that has never taken Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. I pray that they will do that, that they will look to you and they will humble themselves and repent of their sins. And they will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord and ask him to be their Savior. I pray, Lord, that you would help each of us, whatever our relationship with you might be, whatever struggles might be going on in our hearts, that we too would look to heaven and say, God, your ways are good. Your ways are right. I serve you. I love you. That's how I'm going to live. Uh, bless us today as each of us uh, pray and acknowledge whatever we need to acknowledge and press, confess to you today. Through Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen.